You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Healthcare in the U.S. is going through an era of groundbreaking innovation. On June 11th, the Washington Post Live hosted Transformers Health, featuring health innovators and experts to discuss the most innovative solutions to today's top health challenges. Let's listen. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. My name is uh, Colby Ekowitz. I'm a politics reporter here at The Post. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. As um, many of you probably know, he is the former FDA commissioner rather, um, under President Trump. He resigned in April and has joined the venture capital firm New Enterprises Associates as a special partner focused on innovation and healthcare delivery. So I want to remind the audience that if you have any questions for Dr. Gottlieb, you can tweet your questions to us by using the hashtag PostLive. So let's get started. Thanks. So Silicon Valley is betting big on healthcare. You've got you know, Google and Apple and Amazon, which of course Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. I have to say that when I talk about Amazon. Um, <laughs> and they're investing big in the healthcare industry. Is it gonna take innovators like those companies to transform healthcare? You know, perhaps. I think you know, Google has a model like the old Bell Labs where they're experimenting for the sake of experimentation. So they're doing some interesting things, not just off Verily, but off of the Google Health platform. So if you look what David Feinberg's doing at Google proper, looking at their search technology and applying it to healthcare, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for the applications of digital health and AI in this field. I think with digital health, we're further along. We have a clear regulatory framework. I think with artificial intelligence, it's still early days. I mean, one of the last things I did when I was at the agency the last two weeks was get out that blueprint for how we would you know, sort of envision the regulation of artificial intelligence medical devices. I think with respect to the applications to imaging, um, those applications are here. But I think providing, applying artificial intelligence just more broadly to um, looking at healthcare information, trying to tease out things that can help both clinical development as well as providers. That's a little further away, at least from, from a regulatory standpoint. Right. How did you envision regulating AI? Well, you know, with, with digital health, we recognize that those tools are so highly iterative that we needed to move towards a much different regulatory paradigm where instead of regulating the devices itself, we would regulate, effectively regulate the firms and allow firms to go to market with mm. new iterations of their devices or sometimes new devices altogether if we can validate the underlying software architecture but more importantly, validate how they validated their own software. So basically approve their SOPs, if you will, their standard operating procedures for validating their software. Because we realized that the, the regulatory approach where you require pre-market approval for every new iteration or every new product doesn't really apply. With artificial intelligence, here again, you have a self-learning device that makes modifications to itself and you have to allow, you actually have to allow a regulatory process that um, bakes in the fact that it's going to make mistakes. And that's a, hard, that's a hard thing for a regulator to sort of accept that there's going to be an error rate, but that's part of the, the AI device and part of the self-learning. And so part of the, the broad vision there is that what you would do is you would regulate them by um, making available a publicly available data set that you would validate and then you, you would ask sponsors to validate their tools against that data set. And so if they can demonstrate a certain competency, certain clinical validity, um, clinical utility perhaps against a, a publicly available data set, that, would be, that could be a, a big component of demonstrating um, you know, effectiveness for regulatory purposes. And the agency took a similar approach with next generation sequencing where they recognized certain publicly available data sets, one of which is maintained by the National Institutes of Health. 
as um, sort of the data set that you would test against for the approval of a next generation sequencing platform. So these are whole new concepts of regulation. I think the, for me the broader, the broader message that I was trying to articulate was that we were trying to look at new ways to regulate to accommodate the nature of the innovation we were seeing as opposed to trying to apply the sort of standard regulatory paradigm to these new tools. And sometimes we were able to do that, sometimes we had to seek legislation. So in the case of in vitro clinical tests and even OTC drugs, over-the-counter drugs, we needed to go to Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of piggybacks off that, but we're talking um, provision medicine is a term that you hear kind of tossed around all the time. We're talking about cutting edge treatment models for big diseases. Um, and you made some strides at the FDA for creating a regulatory framework for precision medicine. What else can the FDA do to accommodate kind of the more novel treatments to get them to market faster? Well, I mean, I think that the, the process is pretty efficient right now. You, you know, you're seeing drugs approved on the basis of small series of patients in earlier stages of clinical development because you see the ability to deliver drugs to a very highly targeted patient population and show overwhelming benefit in a small, sometimes heavily pretreated patient population. On the gene therapy side, some of the issue, some of these products look so efficacious that you, know, you basically can have confidence that they're going to deliver a clinical benefit on the basis of relatively small trials. There, the bigger issues are questions around um, sort of theoretical risks associated with the gene therapy. Are you going to have off target effects? Does the sort of structure of the gene therapy construct, the vector that's delivering the gene, change as you change the size of the gene cassette? So there's all these sort of longer term theoretical questions. What's the durability of it? You're not going to be able to answer those in any reasonably sized clinical trial. So I think the, I think the, the whole development process has moved in the direction of um, allowing approval on the basis of small series of patients because there's so much overwhelming um, evidence of effectiveness because the, the populations are being so um, highly pre-specified based on things like diagnostics that can look at patients on the basis of biomarkers that they right. express. The bigger challenge, I think, is a commercial challenge, which is that when these products are getting approved on the basis of 30, 40 patient clinical trials, sometimes in oncology or rare pediatric diseases, you have a commercial environment that's saying, well, that's not enough data. We haven't answered all the questions. That's probably true. We haven't answered all the questions. We need to have robust post-market follow-up. But when you have a significant unmet need, when you're dealing with a pediatric disease that's going to create cumulative disability in a child, there's an imperative to try to get that out to the market more quickly, as, sure, as long as you have a, a, you know, a reasonable assurance of safety that it's not going to create some untoward side effect. When you say commercial, do you mean that doctors? Payers. Payers. You mean the actual patient? The yeah, I mean, no, I mean the actual payers, the health plans. And so, you the know, health, what, oh, the yeah, so one of the, the things insurance. I saw when, when I was at the agency was um, some Medicaid plans tried to move against um, paying for drugs that were approved through accelerated approval. Mm -hmm. CMS ultimately put out a bulletin saying, you know, you have to cover drugs th approved through accelerated approval. FDA has jealously guarded the, the idea that drugs approved through accelerated approval meet the statutory burden for safety and effectiveness and shouldn't be sort of perceived differently, but you've seen payers try to carve that out. That's not a new phenomenon. I remember CMS um, trying to promulgate a policy back in 2003 when I was last at the agency to say, well, a drug approved through accelerated approval isn't really fully approved and therefore we're not going to cover it automatically. But so you're seeing payers do things like that as, as a way to try to use the regulatory process, I think, to, to, as a gating factor to get more control over their own spending. I understand the challenges they face, but uh, you know, some of these products are targeting dreadful diseases. Right. And speaking of dreadful diseases, I know that you are a cancer survivor, um, and my father currently um, is undergoing cancer treatment, and he has tapped into the integrative medicine uh, side of treatment. And so in addition to the chemotherapy that he receives, there's nutritional supplements, there's nutritional infusions through vitamin C and curcumin. And I wonder if you see a future where 
integrative medicine is accepted, wherein those kind of supplements would be regulated by the FDA as medicine as opposed to as a dietary? Well, they can be regulated as medicine if they want to. I think most of them would go the food route, the dietary supplement route, because they don't want to bring forward the evidence that they'd need to, to get a you know, finding of safety and effectiveness through a drug approval process, and that's right. therein lies the challenge. I mean, look, I'm an empiricist. I, I, I think that if people are making claims around these products, they should be bringing forward the evidence to mm. substantiate the claims. And on the dietary supplement side, there was a lot of challenges. I mean, the, the dietary supplement industry has evolved significantly from the days when Deshaies, or the law that governs it, was first uh, implemented. You're seeing a lot more a vast industry, um, but yeah. creating more potential risk, also taking you know more money out of the healthcare system. Um, and I, I thought at the time that I was at FDA, and we put forward proposals for how we could apply greater regulatory supervision to some of those products, including like mandatory listing requirements for ingredients right. and better GMP requirements, manufacturing requirements. But the idea of integrative medicine just generally, I mean, sometimes some insurance companies cover acupuncture now. I mean, right. the idea that there's a holistic health, well, a whole Well, I think there is a holistic. To... Yeah, I mean, look, I think as a, as a physician, I think there is a holistic um, approach to healthcare, and I think that the sort of nexus between mental health and physical health is, is very tight, too, and patients going through a difficult diagnosis like cancer, you know, taking care of their mental health is exceedingly important to a good outcome. I think, for me, the hardest part of my diagnosis was the uncertainty associated with it um, and the emotional uncertainty of not knowing the outcome, not knowing what treatment to select, not knowing how the treatment was going to affect me. Um, and so I think we, as physicians we need to pay attention to that. Now that's that's one component of integrated health. I mean another component are these sort of non-traditional right. approaches to healthcare. Uh, look, I think some of them show promise, but I, but you know, you need to be careful because sometimes when you're applying a dietary supplement to some of these other things, right. it could potentially interfere with the drugs too. I mean, some of these potentiate metabolism or slow it down and could actually interfere with the chemotherapy. And, you know, as a physician, I saw things I practiced in Elmer's Queens, um, you know, which was a community of a lot of um, immigrants, and they would be taking other things right. when they came right. in. And I used to see very weird side effects that weren't associated with the treatment they were receiving, yeah. but were associated with something else that they were taking that they wouldn't necessarily disclose. And so you've seen the, I've seen the other side of this mm. and the challenges I propose. Yeah. So I want to ask you, um, a few years back you were doing some consulting for Pfizer, is that accurate? I, I worked with Pfizer in the past before my time at FDA and, and more than likely going to be working with them again in the future. Yeah. So we had a story um, that we reported um, last week about a Pfizer arthritis drug um, called Embrol. And so here's the background. Uh, Pfizer researchers had found that the anti-inflammatory drug appeared to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. But after much internal review, Pfizer didn't see that Embrol showed promise for Alzheimer's prevention, so they didn't move to any clinical trials. But they also did not share any of that data with other researchers, which some are wondering, why not? Pfizer says they would have pursued this if they believed there was solid scientific rationale to do so. What is your reaction to that story? What's the business model when you, you do an article in advance of one of these <laughs> things a week before you sponsor it? I'm just kidding. Sorry. I had to, I, I had to do it. Um, look, I, you know, I, I read the article. Um, it was based on a retrospective analysis of payer claims data sets. I, you know, those, those are, um, I think, highly speculative. You need to be really careful when you draw conclusions from payer claims data. I always at FDA encouraged 
you know, more sort of signal finding and the use of payer claims data to, to try to do data mining inside the agency. We did it particularly on looking at post-market safety, but sometimes we would look at efficacy questions too. Um, but there, there were a lot of signals generated all the time that we thought were highly speculative and didn't follow up on because there was no other confirmatory evidence or, you know, the data set that we were working with was, was not that reliable. So I think you need to look at the underlying data set to sort of draw a conclusion um, there. The reality is, you know, the, the anti-inflammatories more generally have been looked at over a long period of time, and I think it was, it was well known that they had been looked at um, to see if there could be an effect of Alzheimer's. I think people generally have concluded that's not the case. Um, there's other TNF inhibitors on the market that, you know, had ample opportunity to study these indications and chose not to. Obviously, Humira has a lot of years left on patent life, and so I, I have a hard time believing that someone stumbled across a cure for Alzheimer's disease and tried not to follow it up. Um, but, you know, it opens up a more interesting question of, of doing um, sort of a very exploratory analyses off data sets that are very dirty, and what do you do when you have a signal that you think is not really even hypothesis generating? You don't, you don't believe it's a real signal. Do you have an affirmative obligation to publish that or follow up on it? I think the answer is no. I think you have to make a judgment. I think that it depends on the setting. I think if it's a safety question, probably the bar's a little, little lower to um, speak about it. Depends on the veracity of the data. But if we impose sort of a, a cultural expectation that every time someone does an exploratory study with a retrospective analysis of a payer claims database, they're going to have to publish it, I think you're going to close down a lot of like just sort of tooling around with data that could be actually advantageous. Is there also a concern that people would hear about this with um, and try to go take Enbrel off market and uh... potentially? I mean, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I don't know how the the I don't know how the press would have perceived the company if they had published this in some you know publication and would that have been perceived as you know trying to um, instigate use of Enbrel. Now, mind you, I think the company just had rights to the drug XUS and not in the U.S. I think it's an, I think it's another company's drug in the U.S. Um, but but that said, you know, I, I remember and I don't remember the TNF and inhibitors in particular, but I remember there was a discussion around other anti-inflammatory drugs and could they be effective in Alzheimer's because there was a perception that some of the basis for that disease etiology was an inflammatory process. And so it had been sort of picked over and thought about and there had been some studies done with various anti-inflammatories, at least small series of studies. So it wasn't, an, at the time, I don't remember this being a novel con concept, um, so I'm, I'm sure that's the basis for why they even bothered to look at the payer claims data, or at least part of the basis, but not having looked at the, the, the data, um, it's hard for me to really draw a conclusion about how believable is it, but okay. um, I, again, I, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic, and part of that skepticism is that I think if a company had stumbled upon data that looked convincing in the biggest um, indication that could possibly be um, be addressed by a new therapeutic. I'm having a hard time believing they would walk away from that. Um, you know, and Enbrel's gone, there's biosimilar competition to Enbrel, but it hasn't fallen off a cliff. It's still, a, I think, a pretty lucrative market for the people who are uh, marketing those products. Yeah. Um, so my colleagues and I are uh, working on a series this year called uh, The Fentanyl Failure. Um, we're documenting the government's failure to address the opioid crisis, specifically the rise in fentanyl. Um, it kind of came out of nowhere and spiked, and suddenly we see tens of thousands yeah. of people dying. And 
you know, is, although the president has said that the opioid crisis is a top priority for the administration, you know, the deaths continue to rise. The fentanyl is still making its way into heroin. Now it's making its way into meth. I mean, what is the big public health idea to tackle this? Well, you know, I think that I think it's a it's an important observation that the, the nature of the opioid crisis is evolving. I mean, this was a crisis formed through medical addiction and the early addiction, which we were very slow to address and always one step behind the curve in, in this burgeoning epidemic from a policy standpoint was being driven by Vicodin, Percocet, primarily the short-acting, the, the immediate release formulations of opioids, but the long-acting formulations in the higher dose. I think that it's evolving towards one more of street drugs, to your point, fentanyl. Not just fentanyl, you know, fentanyl that's being sold as pressed fentanyl, that's being sold as, you know, Vicodin and Percocet online, but it's really pressed fentanyl. And I think as it, and, and more of the new addiction, what we were seeing is more of the new addictions being formed from people whose first exposure is actually street drugs. And I think as that happens, as the addiction crisis migrates to that, you're going to see more overdose deaths because people are now using street drugs and they're getting a super potent formulation of fentanyl in what they think is a Xanax that they're buying online and, and they're dying overnight. Right. Um, they're using these as parties at parties. So we have to recognize that the nature of this addiction crisis is evolving very rapidly. And you know we've been guilty for a very long time of always fighting the last fight and being slow to recognize um, how these things are evolving. And we're still sort of focused from a policy standpoint on the medical prescribing, and we shouldn't lose our focus on that, but medical prescribing is going down and it's being dwarfed by the flows of fentanyl coming in. We looked, when I was at FDA, we looked at seizures as a proxy for flows, which is a poor proxy because you don't know if seizures are going up because you're doing better interdiction work or it's going up because there's more flowing across the border. But the growth in seizures... Um, dwarfed the decline in medical prescribing. Um, and so we also struck a collaboration. I signed an MOU with Customs and Border Protection right before I left, where we are going to work with Customs, or the FDA is now going to be working with, have to be yeah. careful about we, the <laughs> FDA is now going to be working with Customs and Border Protection to look at um, the seizures. And CBP will make available to FDA a certain representative sample of seizures. FDA will test that mm. to determine what the potency is. And instead of just reporting seizures in pounds, which is historically how Customs and Border Protection right. reports seizures, it's going to be reported in morphine equivalents. So you're going to know the total amount of actual narcotics coming in in terms of its potency and not just in terms of its pounds. That, I think that's going to be um, mind-boggling once that data comes out. It's the kind of thing that someone's going to open up the newspaper one day and they're going to say, did we give permission to do this? You know, like, yeah. and we struck the MOU, and this is we announced it when we did it and talked about it. Um, but I think once that data gets reported, it's going to um, be eye popping. And 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 the other thing I'd say is um, the agency that does more interdiction work is actually the Coast Guard. It's not Customs right. and Border right. Protection. So right. a lot of the, that a lot of those seizures are done at sea, and we weren't even looking at that that data. We were just looking at CBP. Yeah. Am I running down I the wanna, clock? We are, and I have like. 17 fentanyl follow-up questions, but that I don't have time for. Um, but I do want to ask you, what innovations out there are you most excited about? What do you see coming down the pike that you think could really transform the healthcare industry? Well, certainly the, the, the curative potential of, of um, gene therapy, which is now, you know, when I was last at the FDA, there was no products approved, and it was, I don't think there was anything in development back in 2003 that was worth speaking about past phase one. And now you're seeing approved products, not just approved products, but a very rich pipeline. I think we're, we're in the early, very early innings of cell-based regenerative medicine and actual, like, legitimate cell-based regenerative medicine, not these clinics that are popping up and doing things trying to skirt, skirt regulatory oversight. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for curative potential. Um, and I'm still of the opinion, you know, some, some of these sort of unloved categories like anti-infectives, I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunity for new mechanisms, um, new markets there. And so, you know, if I was placing bets in the sector, which I guess I am now, I'd be looking there too. Great. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this segment, but thank you so much, Dr. Thanks Gutley, for uh, joining us, and uh, please stay seated as we move on to the next portion of our program. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.